Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art market crimes are something that's been viewed as white collar and victimless. And there's a growing awareness that this isn't the case, that these are things that impact a wide range of people that impact our economy, that impact our national security. That's Tess Davis, a lawyer and archeologist by training who serves as executive director of the Antiquities Coalition. After graduating magna cum laude from Boston University with a BA in archeology, span she earned her JD from the University of Georgia School of Law. She oversees the Antiquities Coalition's work to fight cultural racketeering and manages the day-to-day -day operations of the Institute's staff in Washington, D.C., as well as programs overseas. She previously worked for the non-governmental organization Heritage Watch in Cambodia. Her career began at the Archaeological Institute of America, and she has been a legal consultant for the Cambodian and U.S. governments. In 2015, she was knighted by the Royal Government of Cambodia for her help in recovering the country's plundered treasures, awarding her the rank of commander in the Royal Order of the Sahamatrai. Welcome, Tess. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm hoping we could start with your giving our listeners a sense of the genesis and the current activities of the Antiquities Coalition. Of course. Well, paperback novels, Hollywood films, they've all long glamorized pillaging ruins as this romantic quest. Indiana Jones, Lara Croft, Fedoras and Whips, Lost Cities, Treasure Hunt. But in truth, art and antiquities have financed some of the worst actors of the last century. I mean, everyone from the Nazis to the Khmer Rouge, the IRA, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS. And, and yet public policy has and in some ways continues uh, to treat antiquities, looting and trafficking as this white collar and victimless crime. And the Antiquities Coalition was created to correct this narrative, to demonstrate that this isn't just a threat to our shared history, it's a threat to human rights, it's a threat to national economies, it's a threat to global security, and it's a threat to, and this is worth emphasizing, I think, to the legitimate art market. And so our, our organization, we unite a diverse group of experts. We really do prioritize the word coalition and our name in the fight against the illicit trade in ancient art. And this includes business leaders, former government officials, lawyers, security experts, and other professionals, archaeologists as well. And, and we join forces with a wide range of partners, including the art world, to try to strengthen legal markets and trade practices. And that often means that you have symposia or formats where multiple partners are involved. What are some of the recent ones you've had? As you mentioned, this has been a priority of our group since the beginning as well. And this has included everything from small, intimate workshops to ministerials in the Middle East, bringing together 18 countries and the Arab League. And we do believe that dialogue is very important, that the art market needs to talk to governments, needs to talk to law enforcement, needs to talk to the archaeologists, because this is not a problem that any one group can solve on their own. Tess, while much of the world remains careful about venturing out during the pandemic, looters and criminal gangs have exploited unprotected archaeological sites and museums that are shuttered with skeletal staff, if any at all. Can you summarize the impact of that diminished vigilance brought on by COVID-19? 
Well, as we all know, it's been an interesting year and, and COVID-19 is much more than just a, a health emergency. Few things have been spared and that includes our cultural heritage. And uh, as you mentioned early on in the pandemic, you know, cultural sites became sitting docks in many ways for criminals, given that archaeological ruins, world heritage sites, museums, that these were closed to the public. And as you noted, operating on skeleton crews, if, if anyone there. And all that immediately, we saw reports that looters and thieves were taking advantage of the lockdowns, targeting everything from tombs in Israel to the Van Gogh paintings, following patterns that we'd seen earlier during the 2008 financial crisis and the 2011 Arab Spring. Of course, at the same time, the recent market crashes really understandably have forced individual and even as we're seeing today, institutional collectors to consider selling off their works for hard cash. And other investors are looking to dump stocks for tangible assets like cultural property. And the pandemic, it's shuttered brick and mortar establishments. You know, it's inflicted um, unprecedented losses and layoffs and may cause many businesses and, and even museums to, to close their doors forever. The flip side of that is that, you know, just as we're seeing pandemics bad for some and for groups like Amazon and Zoom, it's been a boom. We're seeing this in the art market as well. And this practice of art lending has skyrocketed as collectors are taking out loans from auction houses or boutique firms uh, using their collections as collateral. It's also called art financing. And this is a practice that experts warn is very easily exploited by criminals seeking to launder money or to commit other financial crimes. It's really a critical time, and whether bad actors profit at the expense of legitimate businesses, it's going to hinge on how we all respond to this. Tess, you mentioned time online increasing during the pandemic, and here we are half a century after the November 1970 UNESCO Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Import, Export, and Transfer of Ownership of Cultural Property. And the illicit trade, as you say, shows no signs of slowing down, and the internet has certainly been an accelerant. You spoke on NPR this summer about Facebook as a marketplace. How are their stated plans to scrape their website clean of such illegal activity faring? Well, this is maybe not the new front in the battle, but certainly a new front. And even before the pandemic, there, of course, there's long been this global shift to online selling across all types of markets, legal and illegal alike. I mean, I bought my last car on CarMax online, um, and we're seeing art and antiquities increasingly pop up there as well, and that includes selling on Facebook. From what we're hearing, of course, the lockdowns are going to speed up this existing trend. And indeed, since the very first days of the pandemic, um, archaeological watchdogs like the Athar Project have reported this growing trend of posts in Facebook groups dedicated to the trade and pillaged cultural material. It has been encouraging to see Facebook taking action against this. The words that they've made, the statements that they've made, the policies they've made, we're going to have to see this backed up by action. And I think it's also important to highlight that they're not alone. With many countries banning travel visas, with airline travel plummeting, um, the last statistic I read was something like 90 or 95% from last year, and increased passenger screenings for, you know, for those who are flying. If I were a smuggler, I'd be choosing other means of getting my artifacts from source to market. And so we're also expecting a rise in trafficking through the post, other carrier services, and air or marine cargo. 
The good news to this very bad situation is that since online activity and since so much shipping leaves a trail, hopefully these adaptations will make it easier for law enforcement and others to track and to catch Mm -hmm. these criminals. And certainly it provides opportunities for companies, be they Facebook or FedEx, to do a lot of good in this fight. There's a U.S. law, the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970, which was passed the same year as the UNESCO Convention. And five decades later, it continues to hamper transparency in the trade because dealers of arts and antiquities are exempt from the act, which requires businesses, quote, whose cash transactions have a high degree of usefulness in criminal tax or regulatory matters, end quote, to help the U.S. government in detecting and preventing financial crimes. And I noted that this summer, the U.S. Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations made mention of the problem. But what are the odds of lifting that exemption and bringing the art market into the light. We do think that this is something that's going to happen in the near future. As you mentioned, the Bank Secrecy Act, which in my opinion is a horribly misnamed statute, (laughs) you know, it dates back to 1970. And this is our country's main anti-money laundering law. Due to its name, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear how broad a statute this is. And they think it only applies to financial industries, that it only applies to places like banks. And that's not the case. And something that I do think it's important to highlight is that the Bank Secrecy Act puts in protections for at-risk industries across the board. So that includes precious metals, stone, jewels, sellers of cars, sellers of boats, sellers of planes, uh, pawn shops. And when we think about it in many ways, what is an auction house if not a billion dollar pawn shop? The business model is actually very similar. And so what the BSA requires is for these at-risk industries to help to assist the U.S. government in detecting and preventing financial crimes. And what this means in practice varies from sector to sector. They really do try to tailor the regulations to the specific needs of the individuals in question. But it includes things like reporting suspicious activity, performing customer due diligence, keeping records for a specified number of years, basically things that are are good business practices. Understandably, the art market is concerned about any new regulations. But this is something that other sectors have have gone through and survived in the United States. Again, the gemstone industry provides a good model. And it's something that the art market is surviving across the pond. Uh, Thus far, the European Union, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, they have applied the AML infrastructure to the art market. And Our hope is that when this happens in the United States, and I do think it's a matter of when, not if, that we'll have all of these lessons learned from other sectors, from other jurisdictions, to make this process as painless as possible. And again, to do it in such a way that protects the art market from being abused by criminals and that punishes the art market for the actions of those criminals. Tess, through a financial crimes task force, you have been tracking shell companies, conducting transactions with traffickers in the millions of dollars. And I'm curious how helpful have U.S. authorities been in pursuing criminal conduct in the antiquities market? That's a fantastic question. And certainly in recent years, federal law enforcement agencies have increasingly prioritized fighting crimes within the art market. And again, I mentioned earlier that for, for far too long, 
art market crimes are something that's been viewed as white collar and victimless. And there's a growing awareness that this isn't the case, that these are things that impact a wide range of people that impact our economy, that impact our national security. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, Homeland Security Investigations, their agents are doing great work in the field. Of course, they always need extra support. And, you know, these are very challenging cases. We mentioned previously that the Bank Secrecy Act does not yet protect the art market. That means that U.S. law enforcement aren't getting these suspicious activity reports that they might get for other industries. And those reports, SARs as they're called, they're an important tool for law enforcement and not just investigating crimes, but even knowing that the crimes are there to begin with. And something that struck me at an anti-money laundering conference that I was able to attend back when we had in-person conferences last year was there was a, a federal prosecutor there from Manhattan. And he said, the art market keeps me up at night because it's a black hole. I have an idea of what's going on in other industries, other sectors, because we get these suspicious activity reports. And we have no idea what's going on in this multi-billion dollar art market. There are a number of cases and something our financial crimes task force did do was compile public investigations, public prosecutions, public convictions of financial crimes within the art market. And when you look at these case studies, you see that uh, with pretty rare exception, the authorities learned about them through something like the Panama leaks or an undercover investigation, or they were investigating something else and stumbled into this. And that means that we're probably missing a lot of the cases that are out there, which again, should concern not only law enforcement, but also the, the legitimate art market as well. Do you foresee this problem being given a higher priority in the Biden administration itself? Something we have found encouraging is that applying the anti-money laundering infrastructure to the art market and actually strengthening the country's AML laws across the board, this is something that has had bipartisan support. Indeed, there are three different bills now before Congress that would achieve this. And as I mentioned, they all had bipartisan support and also had the stamp of approval from the White House. So I do think this is an issue that the U.S. government is committed to addressing. It's committed to addressing it in a bipartisan way. There's increased awareness that this is really in everyone's interest, including the art markets. Des, you mentioned the times we're living in. Nationalism, of course, is on the rise, and that has surely complicated the quest for collective action. But it's also made some governments more determined, I assume, to protect cultural heritage within their borders, or is that not the case? Given all the challenges that the world is facing this year, from COVID-19 to recessions, armed conflict, you would think that cultural heritage wouldn't be very high on that radar. And yet, I think we've seen the opposite. From the very start of 2020, this year started with a debate over the U.S. potentially targeting cultural heritage sites in Iran. You know, that started the year that was a very high profile issue. That was the major headline for three or four days in a row and a pretty crowded field of headlines. We've also seen, particularly across the Atlantic, how the Black Lives Matter movement has been very closely connected to museum collections of material that was plundered from Africa. And so I think even with everything that's going on in the world that 
cultural heritage does still matter in a big way. And this presents, you know, opportunities to get some things done. Something that struck me, a, a colleague from Yemen, which of course has been suffering pretty much every unimaginable horror in recent years from cholera outbreaks to armed conflict and violent extremism. And you would think that that would mean that this would be a lower priority for, say, the government of Yemen. Again, we've seen the opposite to that. A colleague of mine, I thought, summed it up very eloquently. He said, this is when these things matter more than ever, when you risk losing everything. You want to have this legacy to pass on to your children so they know who they are. And that's something I've done a lot of work in the Kingdom of Cambodia, which, of course, suffered heavily in the 1970s, 80s, and, and 90s from armed conflict from genocide, from foreign occupation. And I've had colleagues there say the same thing, that when times are the most terrible, that's when your cultural heritage matters more and not less. And so hopefully that increased attention, that cultural heritage won't be misused by the various powers in place, but it'll be an opportunity to do some good. Well, on the flip side, there has been lively debate about the degree to which the illicit trade in antiquities may fuel terrorist networks. And I'm curious what evidence you rely on in making judgments about this phenomenon. Well, obviously, um, criminal networks, be they trafficking antiquities or be they trafficking wildlife or trafficking people, uh, this is underground activity. And so getting accurate statistics are things that we've struggled with as well. It is a challenge to know what's happening. I mentioned I've done a lot of work in Cambodia, and it's only been within recent years that we've been able to figure out what was happening in Cambodia in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and the connections between those networks and the financing of groups like the Khmer Rouge. Things have changed a great deal. We've talked about the online trade, Facebook posts, or even satellite photos, things like that provide us with evidence in real time that we didn't have for previous conflicts. What we do know is that for instance, ISIS has been a group that certainly made headlines for this in recent years. A U.S. raid of the CEO, the so-called CEO of, of ISIS, their emir of oil and gas, revealed not only a cache of antiquities, but also computers with photos of more pieces that have presumably already disappeared into the black market. During that raid, the U.S. forces also found receipts that if you added them up, if they continued at that rate, it would have been around $5 million for the year. And again, that's a raid of one individual at one point in time. So while we don't know the exact dollar figure, what we do know from reports on the ground, from activists who have been risking their lives to get information out from ISIS-controlled territory, from satellite photos. We do know that at the height of this false caliphate that groups like Daesh were devoting major resources to looting and trafficking. I mean, you could see it in satellite photos, extensive excavations over extensive territory. For all the criticism of ISIS, they proved themselves to be very adept businessmen. They ran a criminal empire. Indeed, some criminologists have been saying we need to treat them more like a, a mafia group than a, a violent extremist network because they operate in very similar ways. I think that's very telling that this group that was very, very focused on profit and quickly became the world's richest terrorist organization in history, that they were devoting substantial resources to looting and trafficking. 
I think that shows that it mattered to them financially, that it was worth it to them, regardless of what we know the dollar figure to be. Fighting this trade, it's not something that's as black and white as heroin or arms. Whether an antiquity is licit, whether it's illicit, how does a customs agent tell that at a border somewhere? Very much like the trade in in so-called blood diamonds, whether an antiquity is illicit depends on where it came from and how, which makes it very easy to launder these things onto the legitimate market. Yeah, and speaking of that, In September of this year, an indictment in Manhattan Federal Court was unsealed, naming the owner of Antiquities Gallery, Fortuna Fine Arts Limited, of defrauding buyers and brokers in the market by using false ownership history. Is there any way to quantify how common provenance falsification is? As this case demonstrates, it's a lot easier to forge a provenance than it is to forge an antiquity. And this is something that we've seen in a number of law enforcement cases and prosecutions, that you have antiquities that were looted, sometimes recently, sometimes from conflict zones, and yet they're given this false ownership history, which enables the criminals to launder them onto the legitimate market. I think in many respects with antiquities, particularly those that come from areas in crisis, be that an economic crisis, be it armed conflict, be it nations that are suffering from terrorist activity, that the market really needs to treat a lot of these pieces as guilty until proven innocent. And to really look at the provenance, seeking to disprove it and then be pleasantly surprised if you don't. And something that I have found very interesting, and we've seen this in a number of cases that have shown up in the court docket or in newspaper headlines, is that you'll have a provenance that was accepted by leading experts in archaeology or ancient manuscripts or curators, but was disproved by a journalist in five minutes using Google. The Subhash Kapoor case, where a journalist Googled one of the addresses that was on one of the provenance papers, which is where this very valuable antiquity was supposed to have been for years or maybe even decades. And I want to say I might be forgetting the specific details, but I think it was a walk up in Queens. And it's like, well, doesn't this raise a a red flag that maybe there's not a million dollar antiquity in your average walk up in Queens? On the one hand, there is more information available than ever to help research provenances. On the other hand, of course, criminals have become very adept at forging these documents. And it's amazing the extent that we've seen them go to. They get very creative in trying to do this. So it is a recognized challenge. And I think it is also a case of the buyer really needs to beware. And this, again, isn't just a matter of fighting the illicit trade. It's also a matter of a consumer protection that buyers need to be suspicious and really need to do their homework. U.S. museums, I think you'd agree, have largely now abjured buying unprovenanced material. But that's the end of a pipeline. The source of the pipeline continues to be fed constantly, as you've said. I'm hoping you could get us a little closer to the ground, Tess, and paint a picture of the policing or their lack thereof of archaeological sites in one nation in Iraq. Within recent decades, we've seen a sea change in how museums treat ancient art. I mentioned that I've done a great deal of work with the royal government of Cambodia. And 
looted pieces were coming out of Cambodia in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s from Khmer Rouge occupied areas, and in many cases going into some of the world's leading museums. And I talked to curators who were there at the time. They said they sometimes had dirt on them. Fast forward to more recent years when news erupted of what was happening in Iraq and Syria and ISIS-controlled territory. And we saw museums in many ways really leading the charge to try to keep this material from coming onto the market. And so I think that's a sea change in what's happened. In conversations with criminologists, and I actually worked in a criminology department for years, even though I'm not one myself, is that I've been frequently told by some of the leading scholars that no illicit trade has ever been defeated at its source, whether you're talking blood diamonds, whether you're talking cocaine, and whether you're talking antiquities. These are demand-driven crimes, and it really does involve changing the demand. Like Wild Aid says, when the buying stops, the, the killing will too, right? Think of the challenges that are, are happening on the ground in Iraq or Syria, or even earlier in Cambodia or Cyprus and the conflicts there in the 1970s. You have places that are, in effect, a large archaeological site. You can dig pretty much anywhere in Iraq, and you'll probably hit evidence of human civilization at some point. It's very hard to police an entire country, especially with a conflict going on. We have challenges here in the United States as well, and I think, oh, you know, for the most part, we're a pretty stable country, um, despite some of the events of 2020. And yet our federal lands, our Native American lands, looting is rife on those. We're not able to do this either. As long as there is a demand, criminals are going to find a way. And that's something that, you know, I've been told, I've done a lot of field work in Cambodia talking to people who were looters. And I would always ask them, you know, what could the government have done to, to keep you from doing this? They've always said variations of, well, you can make it more difficult, but you can't make it impossible. And as long as there's money, people will find a way to do this. And in terms of criminal activity, a low risk um, and potentially high reward endeavor. Again, a lot of the countries that are hotspots now for looting and trafficking, Iraq and Syria in particular, the, the entire country is an archaeological site. You can't monitor the entire country all the time. Once you get these pieces out of the ground, if you're crossing borders, you know, they're not going to be picked up by metal detectors in many cases. They're not going to be picked up by drug-sniffing dogs yet, though there are groups that are actually working on antiquity-sniffing dogs. And if you get caught, um, often it's a civil penalty if there's any penalty at all. And so it does make it a very, very difficult crime to fight. Tess, that's presumably why among the many innovations of the Antiquities Coalition is the 10 Most Wanted Antiquities program you've introduced. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so what we're hoping to do is to raise awareness of some of the more infamous cases of ancient art and artifacts that are missing, that have disappeared into the black market or disappeared otherwise, in the hopes that some of these are out there somewhere. And so we've highlighted pieces from around the world representing a number of different cultures that again have disappeared. And our hope is that someone will see this and help to bring these pieces out. Today's conversation I know will also prompt interest on your website and more curiosity about how people can be of help. And I wanna thank you for making the time for us today, Tess. It's been fascinating. Thank you and also thank you for using your platform to raise awareness of this issue. We've been speaking today with Tess Davis, Executive Director of the Antiquities Coalition.
Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.